0: You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now before this, Eliashib the priest who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the thirty-second year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And then I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry. And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber, Then I gave orders and they cleansed the chambers. Then I brought back these vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Padiah of the Levites, and as their assistant Hanan the son of Zakur, son of Mataniah. For they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. Thus I cleansed from them everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times, and for the first fruits, Remember me, oh my God, for good.
1: You on a hill, take a seat. How are we this morning? Good. good. Well, to quote those great philosopher poets of the late 20th century, boys to men, we've come to the end of the road. This has been my church family for a really, really long time. And as we head off today, I want to take a moment to say thank you uh, for being church, for being the church to my family and I, for all the ways you've loved us, cared for us, taught us, reminded us of the gospel, prayed with us, and so many more things Um, from the very bottom of my heart. Thank you. Thank you for being the church. I'm so grateful. We've also come to the end of the road in our series. And as we jump into the last sermon, I'm going to preach as a part of this church. I want to be really clear about what my goal is this morning. All I want to do is preach Nehemiah chapter 13. As clearly and as helpfully as possible, I want to unpack the passage in front of us that 's my only agenda. if you 've been around for city if you 've been around city on Hill for a while, you 'll know that 's what we do here. We kind of just turn the page and see what it says. And this morning is going to be no different. And I want to tell you that for two reasons. The first one is if you 're expecting some sort of parting words or farewell address, words of wisdom as we leave, you might leave a bit disappointed, but that 's OK. Because I'm confident that what God has to say to us this morning is far better and far more useful than anything I would come up with. The second reason you need to know I'm trying to preach Nehemiah 13 is because if I was trying to give you some sort of parting words, Nehemiah 13 is absolutely not the passage I would have picked. (laughs) This is just not... Anywhere near where I would have gone, and so it's really important to know that because I don't want to like I don't want us to read too much into it, Uh, like read into it, see what God has to say to it, but don't read into our relationship. As I'm not Nehemiah, you're not Israel. Here, that's not what I'm trying to say. Right, I'm just trying to teach the passage. So as we dive into Nehemiah 13, please have a Bible open, either digital or physical. That'd be really helpful this morning. And I'm going to pray again that God would help us. God, we are so thankful for so many things, your incredible grace to us in so many ways. We thank you for this church. We thank you for this time together. And we pray, would you bless us now as we open your words, speak to us, teach us, fill us with hope in Jesus that he might get all the glory and praise and honor forever. And all of God's people said, amen. I like words. I just like them. Uh, I think words are really fun. I love the way they sound. I love the possibilities of rhythm and rhyme. I like understanding words. I like podcasts about the origin of words. And I still play Wordle. Any of the faithful remnant out there? Yeah, love it. Uh, I'm still going. I'm just a big fan of words because I think words are fun. Let me give you an example. This word's been tickling me pink recently. It's the word recapitulation. You might have heard this word, you might not have, but this is one of those words that's really fun because it's unnecessarily long. It's especially fun that this is long because the definition of recapitulation is this a concise summary or retelling. <laughs> I love that our word for concise summary has so many syllables. And now we don't use the word recapitulation much, right? We're much more likely to use the shortened version, recap. You you know recap? You do a recap or something, it's a concise summary. But if you think about it, words get even more fun because that means the definition of recap is a recapitulation of the word recapitulation. (laughs) Words are fun, are they? If you don't think that's fun, spare a thought for my wife and children because (laughs) I am like this all the time. But I start here because as we come to the end of our series, I think it's worth doing a little recap of where we've been, a recapitulation of the story of Ezra and Nehemiah. And so that's our first heading this morning, recapitulation. When we picked up the story at the beginning of Ezra, things weren't great. The Babylonians had destroyed the temple and the city of Jerusalem. The people of God had been taken into exile. And Ezra and Nehemiah is kind of a comeback story from there. And we see kind of three big scenes that, that I've had some help this week from Amy Kirkbride, who's a wonderful artist. She's drawn some pictures to help us grasp onto these. Three things happen in Ezra and Nehemiah. The first one is they rebuild the temple. In the first six chapters of Ezra, as Zerubbabel leads a group of people back into Jerusalem, they get to work rebuilding the temple, the center of God's presence, restoring the architecture that's the center of their religious life together that's where the rebuilding project starts and then after the temple comes the torah the law the rest of ezra is about the temple is less about the temple more about the torah ezra comes back to make the law the center of their life together again their community is going to be built on this they confront some of the ways they've been ignoring god in the past and the way he calls them to live and they begin aligning themselves to their lord once more And then the third scene, which we've seen through Nehemiah, is the city. The first seven chapters of Nehemiah aren't so much about the temple or the Torah as much as they're about the city. Nehemiah comes back and he leads the people in rebuilding the walls. And that's kind of where we've left the story off. The last couple of weeks, the building project has been finished. The temple, the Torah, and the city are the way that they should be once more. And the city is back in action. The temple's up and running. The people are built on the law of God. And this, Jerusalem, has become home sweet home. And so they celebrate and they sing for chapters and chapters. It's such a great story. It's so good. It's, it's a tale of God's triumph and faithfulness and redemption. And it would be so great if the story just stopped there. If the credits just rolled, we all got to go home happy. But there's a problem. The word recapitulation has a second meaning, and it's this. The repetition of a stage or phase, usually a bad stage. It means to capitulate or to give in again, to return to a habit or a pattern, a second or a third or a fourth time. Recapitulation is the opposite of rehabilitation. As you find yourself going through the same old thing you've gone through before. And that makes recapitulation the perfect heading for Nehemiah chapter 13. Because here we watch the people of God go back to the things we thought they'd left behind. As we look through the story so far, chapter 13 takes us back through every single stage and makes us watch on with horror as it all comes crashing down. When we pick up the story in this chapter, Nehemiah has been away for a while. The building projects have been completed. So he heads back to Babylon for a time. But but after just a few short years, he too wants to come home. So he asks for leave and he sets off for Jerusalem to be with his people. But when he arrives, Nehemiah begins to walk around the city. He walks the same streets he once walked. He looks upon the same buildings, and really it's hard to imagine a more discouraging state of affairs because everything he worked so hard to rebuild has crumbled it's a systematic deconstruction of everything jerusalem has achieved so far and everywhere he looks he sees broken promises the best way to see this is is to read chapter 13 together with chapter 10. It's kind of like a before and after. You know those photos where you have somebody who looks sad and sleepy and just dreary, and then they have this shake diet, and then suddenly, not only have they lost weight, they've had their teeth done, and their house has been renovated, and everything is good in life. Well, this is like that, but the opposite. Because in chapter 10, it's kind of like a, a mountaintop moment as they renew the covenant they have with God. They renew their promises. They promise to be faithful to their Lord. And it's full of hope and joy and promise. That's the before. But then the after is in chapter 13. Check it out. In chapter 10, the people promise this in verse 30. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. This is the intermarriage issue we've seen before coming up again. They promise we're not going to go there again in chapter 10. But in chapter 13, Nehemiah walks the streets and sees that in those days I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, Moab, and half their children spoke the language of Ashdod. They could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. Not only are the intermarriage issues back with a vengeance, now Israel has started to blend with the people even more to the point where they cannot even read their scriptures. They don't speak their mother tongue any longer. Chapter 10, we see another promise. The people promised that if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. We'll keep the Sabbath, just like the law says. But in chapter 13, Nehemiah says that Tyrians also, who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of good and sold them on the Sabbath. Not just to anyone, to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. In chapter 10, the people promised, we will not neglect the house of God. And in chapter 13, Nehemiah sees, I found out the portions of the Levites had not been given to them. So the Levites and the singers who did the work, they were the employees of the temple. They'd fled each to their field. So I confronted the officials and said, why was the house of God forsaken? The temple workers haven't been provided for. The temple itself has been neglected. There's no one left caring for it. So Nehemiah please, why is the house of God forsaken? It, It goes through those three stages again. The temple, the law, the city. Everywhere Nehemiah looks, Jerusalem has just become a dumpster fire of spirituality. The temple's been neglected, the law's been ignored, and now the city lies in ruins. The physical walls they built might still be intact, but but I'm not sure there's much of any spiritual value behind them worth protecting. As we look at chapter 13, we have to come to terms with the fact that the story of Ezra and Nehemiah ultimately is not a triumph. It's a tragedy. There are some very high moments, but there's no happy ending. And any reader of the Old Testament will hear this story and think, here we go again. Recapitulation. We've been here before. Here we go again. The story of God's people just does this. Right from the beginning in Genesis, the story sees them falling again and again to the same old patterns, the same old habits, the same old sins as they continue to forget and forsake and reject the God who made them. It's there in Genesis. It's there in Exodus, Deuteronomy, Judges, kings, chronicles, and here again in Ezra, Nehemiah. In fact, this is how the Old Testament ends. The first half of the Old Testament is the historical recount, the story of Israel, and it finishes here. Everything else is wisdom and poetry and prophecy, but here is where the story kind of comes to an end for a while. And it's not a happy ending. The story of God's people in the Old Testament ends with them in the same old spiral and it shows us that all along it's not ultimately the temple or the torah or the city that's been the problem the neglect and abuse of these things have simply been symptoms of a far greater disease that of sin The human tendency to reject and replace the God who made us. And so the end of this story is a painful and unresolved reminder that the great problem facing the people of God has nothing to do with their architecture. It's not about their location, it's not their circumstances. It's not about opposition they face from the world around them. It's not the quality of their human leaders. It's not a lack of religious ritual. It's not a lack of effort. The problem that plagues them and us is sin. The temple's been neglected. The law has been ignored and the city lies in ruins. And the story ends with a painful reminder of the awful truth that sin stains everything. And we can't ever forget that for us either. We cannot forget that, that sin is our great enemy because if we do, when life is going good, we might get complacent and start to forget God. When our circumstances seem positive, we can, we can make sin less of an issue than it really is. But the flip side is also true. When life is feeling hard, if we forget that sin is our issue, we can, we can find comfort and solace in all of the wrong places. But it's not the temple or the law or the city. It's not our circumstances. It's not leadership. It's not opposition that are our ultimate enemy. It is sin. Important to remember, this is not the passage I would have picked for us today. (laughs) The question is, where is Nehemiah in all of this? This man of God who's done such a great job of leading God's people through thick and thin, the man who seemed to have successfully led God's people out of their issues. As he sees them return to their old ways, what's he thinking? What's what's he feeling and how does he respond? Well, that takes us to part two. A cold and broken hallelujah. The most vivid problem we see in Nehemiah chapter 13 is the temple. A man named Tobiah has been one of the great enemies of God's people all along. Many, many times in this story, God's people have, f- have faced opposition. Many, many times, Tobiah has been the one behind it. Now, in the temple, there's supposed to be a room dedicated to storing all the gifts and the offerings and the sacrifices of God's people. But when we get to this chapter, we see that one of these rooms has been cleared out. The gifts and the offerings have dried up, and in their place are the possessions of Tobiah. God's great enemy is using the temple as his own personal storage unit. This is about as horrifying as it gets. So when Nehemiah enters the temple and he sees this, how does he respond? Fury. Verse 8, he says, And I was very angry. And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. You can imagine the scene. You're standing in the corridor of the temple, and then suddenly you hear this primal scream before a chair comes flying out the door into the wall. You hear the vases smash. You walk in, and you see him upturning the tables. Later in the chapter, he even starts pulling someone's hair out. So real and raw is his anger at this. And, and I've got to say, it kind of makes sense. Everything that was so good has crumbled. Everything he worked so hard for has been undone. You, you can imagine how, des- how desperately frustrating that is. You can imagine how that might lead you to despair so what do you pray at a time like that? How do you approach God with all of those feelings? Now, here's what Nehemiah says. Remember me, O oh God. Three times in this chapter, he prays, remember me, O oh God. It's even the last words of the book. Remember me, O God, for good. Those words echo into the darkness. In the midst of this total recapitulation, this, this tragedy by any definition, Nehemiah sees it and he knows he can't fix it. Should he have done things differently? Should he have planned his succession plan a little better? Should he have written clearer policies and procedures and and trained more co-laborers? Maybe. But but even then, I'm not sure that would have gotten the job done. Because the problem is just so much bigger than him. And so I think in praying this prayer... Nehemiah starts to come to terms with his own powerlessness. His own impotence, his own inability to do anything to fix this. He's just helpless. And he starts to worry that all his work has been for nothing. And so he turns to the Lord and pleads that at least he wouldn't be forgotten in the midst of all this sin. With sadness and despair, he reaches out to God and declares his desperate need. The lyrics of the Leonard Cohen song come to mind, don't they? You can just hear hallelujah on on the lips of Nehemiah as he says, I did my best. It wasn't much. I couldn't feel, so I tried to touch. I told the truth. I didn't come to fool you and Even though it all went wrong, I'll stand before the Lord of song with nothing on my tongue but hallelujah. He prays, yes, but it's a cold and broken hallelujah. He's trusting God, but this is the prayer of a battered and bruised man who despairs at what he sees. A man longing for a different day. Which brings us to Jesus and our third heading. Same, same, but different. It's a few hundred years later that Jesus would enter the very same city. Walk the very same streets, stare at the same buildings, enter the same temple. And in many ways, Jesus had the same feelings that Nehemiah did. More than once, the Gospels record that Jesus would look upon the city of Jerusalem and just weep. Because it was so lost. The spiral of sin continues for generations after this. But there's one episode in John... Chapter 2, where where the similarities between Nehemiah and Jesus are especially striking because it turns out Nehemiah is not the only guy in the Bible to start throwing furniture around in the temple. Check out John 2 verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand. Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords... He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned the tables. Jesus arrives and it's the same old story. The temple's been neglected. The law has been ignored. The city lies in spiritual ruins and like Nehemiah, Jesus is furious at the abuse of God's temple. Like Nehemiah, he overturns tables in God's house. But, but what Jesus says next shows that he came to do something Nehemiah could never do. When Jesus is confronted by these same old issues, he makes a claim that takes our breath away and shows this time things are different. After turning over tables, the Jews said to him in verse 18, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. Will you raise it up in three days? But, But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he'd said this and they believed scripture and the word Jesus had spoken. Here's the difference. Jesus died on the cross. His body was destroyed. And when it was, he made once for all the perfect temple sacrifice. The sacrifice for the sins of all humanity, the sacrifice for your sins and mine. And then he rose again three days later to show that the payment cleared. And at the moment of Jesus' death, at the moment of the destruction of his body, something incredible happened. The curtain in the temple was torn in two. The veil that separated people from God because of our spiral of sin was ripped in half because we don't need it anymore. Jesus didn't come to rebuild the temple. He came to replace it. The thing that separated us from God was our sin. But on the cross, Jesus dealt with that problem. And now we can approach God with confidence, without need of a temple without the need for spiritual sacrifices, for for the need of any ritual, without the need to be in a certain place or to study the law to make sure our approach is just so. We don't need to be in a place or a city or a building. We can just come. Because Jesus made the perfect sacrifice once for all. He did what Nehemiah could never do and dealt with the problem. By dying in our place, he put an end to the spiral of sin that had been our story for centuries as the people of God. And so now, we do not put our hope in a temple or a law or a city. We put our hope in Jesus Our hope is in him who invites us to come with confidence. Despite our rejection and our rebellion of the God who made us, he invites us to come clean, purified, made, righteous, loved, accepted, welcomed, free, and alive. He welcomes us. Our hope is in the one who ensures that God really will remember us for good. Even when we forget him. So the instruction for this morning is very simple. Put your hope in Jesus. Put your hope in Jesus. Bring all of your mess and your brokenness and your spiral of sin to him. Bring those same old habits, and those same old patterns to him. Bring your forgetfulness of God. Bring your rebellion and your rejection of God to him. Because putting your hope anywhere else, in any temple, in any law, in any city, in any relationship, any riches, any ritual, any job, any status. Even any single local church leaves you open to disappointment. But Jesus can handle your hope. Only Jesus can handle your hope, so put your hope in him. As the band comes up, I want to wrap this series up for us. We called this series Rebuild. And over the last 14 weeks we've watched on as Israel rebuilt their temple, reinstituted the law, they rebuilt their city. And and we've seen ourselves in this story too, haven't we? As we've considered what it means for our city to rebuild itself and, and reemerge as we've worked out what it means for us to be the church here and what our place in it all might be. These have been wonderful, wonderful things for us to explore. But, but if I could, I want to lift our eyes just a little bit higher than that. As we finish this series, I want to remind us Jesus is a new and better Nehemiah. And he's building something even bigger. So brothers and sisters, before we sing, would you please stand with me? I'm going to read to us from Revelation chapter 1 as we get a vision from Scripture about our true king and our true hope and our true city. I am making all things new. That's the rebuild we're a part of. If your vision of rebuilding is just about this church or just about this city, you are thinking way too small because there is something so much bigger going on in the cosmos. Our hope is not in this city because Jesus is building a better one. He's not just restoring City on a Hill to what we once were. He's making all things new. City on a Hill, Melbourne, has been my church for a really long time. And there's been some tremendous highs and some disappointments. Saying goodbye is really hard. But here's what I know. I'll be okay. And you'll be okay. Because our hope is not here. It's in Jesus. Our hope is in the great eternal city that he's building. Where there's no temple because we just don't need one. Because God Himself will be with us as our God, and He will wipe away every tear and ensure that there is no more mourning or crying or pain. That's the rebuilding that we're a part of. That's our true city. That's our home. It's a city on a hill. I'll see you there. Let's sing.